Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Last year, we launched our course, The Data-Driven Classroom, and had hundreds of educators and clinicians take this course with consistently amazing feedback. I heard from so many teachers how this course really changed the way they approach data, how they were able to set up simple data systems, train their paras, and be collecting data to make data-based decisions within days of finishing the course. That feedback made me so happy. Now that course has been closed and unavailable since last year, but guess what? We are reopening the course, the data-based classroom, and I want you to be one of the first ones in. If data is something you have been struggling with for years, let's work on this together. Let me give you all of the tools to make this something that can consistently happen in your classroom. And guess what? Since you are a podcast listener, and I absolutely love my podcast listeners, I have an awesome code for you. When you use the code DATA100, you're going to get $100 off of the course bundle. Now, this code is only going to be usable until March 20th. So you only have one week to use this code, but Data 100 will get you $100 off of that course bundle. So that means for less than $200, you are getting the amazing data toolkit with literally hundreds of data sheets, all editable. And don't worry, I teach you how to edit it. And that entire data-driven course that touches on academic data, behavior data, staff training, and so much more. There's a link in the show notes with all of the information. Let's make this year the year that data really works. Hi, I'm Sasha Long, special ed teacher and board certified behavior analyst. Welcome to the Autism Helper Podcast. I'm here to explore different strategies to improve the lives of individuals with autism. I'm so excited to share today's guest. I was really excited to chat with Mari Serda, who is an autistic behavior analyst. And she shares a lot of her perspectives on her Instagram page that I have been following forever. It's auti, A-U-T-I dot analyst on Instagram. And I just find myself like liking everything she posts on Instagram. She has this really great way of sharing her perspective as someone who is autistic as well as a behavior analyst on moving towards a more client-centered approach and everything that that involves. So not only am I excited to have her on the podcast today, but I am also really excited because she will be joining us at our Autism Connection Conference on March 12th. On March 12th, she will be talking about the performative power of language and therapy spaces and share some steps towards moving towards those more neurodivergent affirming practices. 
I cannot wait to learn from her in the conference. If you have not signed up already, I highly suggest you do. The link is in the show notes. Um, Mari and myself and three other speakers will be sharing best practices and real world strategies for working with students with autism. And it's going to be an awesome, awesome day. And I'm just so honored that Mari is joining us. Today, Mari and I are chatting about a lot of things. So we covered kind of her background and what brought her to ABA. Um, We're both from similar backgrounds of the special education world, and I love always getting to talk to behavior analysts that come from the school world. We also talked a lot about the field of ABA and where it is right now and the divide that's happening and the anti-ABA movement and what we as clinicians or anyone as a future BCBA or someone that is a part of this field can do to help move the field in the right direction and where it needs to go. So there's a lot of great topics we cover. She shares about her um, amazing nonprofit organization, and I can't wait for you to hear from her. So without further ado, let's go ahead and jump right in. Hi, Mari. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Sasha. Thanks so much for inviting me to be here with you today. I am excited to chat with you because I have to admit, I'm kind of like a fangirl of your Instagram page. So I'm excited to have you on the podcast. Oh, wow. No, like the honor is totally mine. Uh, I think I have followed you since, oh my gosh, I remember when you had your first YouTube videos. Um, <laughs> the vintage. Your classroom. <laughs> yeah, like the vintage videos. So no, I'm, I'm so excited to actually be on here and, and getting to chat with you. Well, I'd love for you to kind of share a little bit about your background and what brought you to the field of ABA. I always love hearing kind of where people came from, how they came to this community. Yeah, so mine was through the public special education route. So I, you know, did the whole college thing, graduated, and then went into special education and really wasn't even like planning to be in special education. I had gotten like degrees in bilingual ed, um, early special ed, like this was back when like the Texas um, teaching certificates were um, like lifetime type of certificates. And so um, I, I got this call from a principal saying like, hey, we know you applied for this kind of general ed classroom, but I'd like for you to apply for this behavior room. And I'm sitting here going like, okay. Um, <laughs> so interviewed, got the job and literally walked into that classroom. It was back in 2004. Um, walked into that classroom and the door locked behind me. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> what did I get myself into? Um, and these kids were, and I'm, I'm like using air quotations, the worst of the worst. And they were the most amazing kids I had ever worked with. Um, three of them had a primary diagnosis of autism. One had a diagnosis of ODD. Um, and so, you know, of course you go into this thinking and the teachers that were there were like, oh my gosh, you poor thing. But I loved it. I thought they were amazing. Um, and it's also where I first was introduced to a behavior analyst. And so this was way back in the day. Um, and, um, you know, what, I mean, back in 2004, I'm trying to think where the BACB was pretty early on in, in their, um, existence. And so, what this BCBA taught me was so different that from what I experienced when I finally did get into a clinic type of setting in like the 2015, 16 uh, years. And so, you know, for my whole career in special ed, I was sharing what I share now on my Instagram, you know, some of the the perspectives that I, I bring and just the ideas that I try to 
bring across. And so I, I never really understood why I got so much pushback and why I was always in so much trouble in special ed. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's how I got into the field was through special education. So long story short, sorry, I'll go on tangents. No, I, I do too. And you know, I love, we have that in common. I, you know, came in to ABA through, through special ed. And I, I think for me, and I don't know if it's the same for you, but coming from that school background, and always like I, when I started, you know, learning about ABA and practicing ABA, it was always from the school-based perspective. And I think that really changed the way I, I viewed ABA and even sometimes how I relate to other behavior analysts that are maybe more from like a clinical or in-home setting because I that wasn't like my roots. Do you feel that way that like coming from a school background has like impacted your view and practice? Oh, absolutely. Um, it, and it's funny because people would tell me you do dirty ABA. And I'm like, well, maybe it's messy, you know, because I have like 10, 15 kids yeah. with me at one time. Um, and maybe one or two aides that come in for part of the day. Uh, so yeah, no, I, I completely can understand and, and relate to that. And, and I feel like it's just, it, it raises you to be a completely different BCBA because you realize like, the environment, I can never make it sterile the way a clinic is. And that's not real life. And so mm -hmm. I have to make it work in this messy public ed setting where there's all other sorts of rules and restrictions and, you know, political things that come into play that you're like, I just want to teach the kids. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, it most definitely um, shaped me to be a, a much different behavior analyst than some of maybe the clinic based. And, and I will say I have some dear friends that are clinic based and they have taught me so much. Um, but I would think, I, I, I think it's safe to say that it was kind of a reciprocal relationship that, you know, I've been able to teach them some things as well. Um, but I definitely feel like it made me a much more well-rounded behavior analyst. Um, and knowing that like, okay, this is not going to work um, other <laughs> than a clinic setting. And because they're never going to be in a clinic, it's, I've got to be creative um, and I don't know if you ever read um, uh, Dr. Um, Fox's article in behavioral artistry, uh, but I felt like that that was the word. It was like, I'm having to be like this creative, like artistic behavior analyst to figure out solutions in, in an environment that is totally imperfect. Yes. Um, but I loved it. No, and I think it it like it teaches you to deal with those obstacles right away, which are part of the real world. So it's no longer like, okay, well, we're coming from, you know, a clinic environment where everything's controlled. How do we add in obstacles? It's like, nope, obstacles were there from the start. Like we know how to roll with it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, the the classroom is a microcosm of the community. And I think it's a great reflection of a community because no matter where you're teaching, it's always going to reflect the larger community. And so if you can learn for if you can learn how to help students be successful in that microcosm, then there's there's more likely the the chance that they're going to generalize that success to the larger community. So I think if people can really recognize that this the classroom is just a tiny community that is allowing kids th this opportunity to practice, um, it sets them up to be successful or more likely to be successful once they get out into their community um, outside of the school. Yeah, that's a great analogy. Um... What would you, what advice do you have for teachers that are either pursuing their, you know, BCBA right now or interested in that? Like what advice do you have as far as making that transition? Oh my gosh. The first thing I would say to teachers today is, is absolutely, I want to send all the love and pipes. And if I was like <laughs> a bazillionaire, like Jeff Bezos, I would be sending <laughs> you all the, the funding to support because teachers are in such a horrible situation right now. Um, but if they're pursuing their BCBA, 
I, you know, there's just so much going on in the field right now that I think they have to really know their why. Why are mm-hmm. you doing this? Why are you wanting to get into this field? Because, you know, just like any other um, therapeutic discipline, any other setting where you're working with human beings, this is a, a field that while it has potential and while it has great things going, it's also very fractured. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want anybody to come into it jaded um, and know that this is a field that you're going to come in to do work, not just for the clients you're wanting to serve, but for the actual field itself. And so someone that's coming into this is going to have to have a really strong why um, and and hold on to it because, you know, I know you've probably seen a lot of some of the things happening in our field. And, you know, I think it's important that you're, you're ready for that because if you're, if you don't, see it coming and you don't know, um, it can really blindside you. I've had a lot of behavior analysts coming to me recently saying like, I'm ready to leave. Like I'm, I'm so disheartened. I don't know what I can do. Um, and so I think it's really important that you establish your why behind doing this. Yes. Oh my God. They give me like goosebumps a little bit. Cause I feel like that with myself sometimes, right? Like everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac burger, McNuggets or McCrispy sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You know, going back to that again and again, why am I here and what what's our what's our end goal and I, I feel, I think that's a great advice on like knowing what you're getting into as well. I used to teach um, practicum for graduate students and I, it was my favorite class to teach because there like kind of wasn't a curriculum and I didn't, I didn't really want to teach curriculum, but I, I wanted to just chat with everyone about where they were working, what they were doing. But I felt like I was always like the playing devil's advocate on like, well, like they're like, oh, this OT said that and whatever. And I'm like, well, that OT has great ideas. Like that OT would has just as much grad school debt as you're about to have. Like, and like pushing those, pushing those like mindsets a little bit, because I knew that was kind of waiting on the other end of when you become a BCBA and, and, and what people are thinking about us and what the perception is. And, and I think it's really good. You're not going to be as, as good of a clinician if you're not ready for that right out the bat. Absolutely. And I, I love that you taught practicum um, because I, I feel like that's what I do for most of like my IG kind of platform is to push and play a little bit of a gentle devil's advocate. Um, because I, I think, you know, knowing the the state that our field is in right now and knowing the evolution that it's going through, I know a lot of us can feel like, oh, you know, crap, I don't even know what I'm doing anymore. And mm-hmm. I think it's, I think it's important for someone to say, it's okay to feel like you don't know what you're supposed to do now because so many things are being shifted and shaped and reframed and, you know, addressed and, and maybe even, you know, gotten rid of, you Mm -hmm. know? And so I think it's, it's okay for someone to feel that way. And I think it's important for someone to actually say, it's okay to feel like you have no idea what the heck you're doing. We're all kind of right there right now. Yeah. I know sometimes just that like reassurance is like gives everyone that like, okay, <laughs> like that moment for, for those that are listening that either like aren't part of the, the ABA world, or even if you are, and you're maybe not as in touch with like kind of where 
this the field currently is can you kind of give like an this is a loaded question but like kind of in a brief way like this kind of change you say that's happening in our field in the disconnect like what do you view that as so um a little bit of self disclosure um i am also an an individual who's diagnosed autistic so my um role in this and and just kind of my passion is really a, a dual-sided um, because I see both sides of um, this kind of um, disturbance in the ABA world. You know, ABA mm-hmm. is really undergoing some heavy scrutiny from the community that we primarily serve, and that's the autistic community. Um, but I think, too, you know, our entire society is kind of going through this big shift of like, whoa, okay, we have we have a lot of systems in place that really do only benefit certain groups, um, especially, you know, impacts disabled individuals. Um, and so I think ABA is really kind of at a crossroads of, okay, what, what are we going to do? How are we going to respond um, to these very real um, concerns? And are we going to sit back and recognize that we have said that we are a field of social validity and the social validity is speaking right now. We have people that are concerned with the way that we are implementing our science. Um, And so, you know, I think we've had voices from both sides now um, coming and finally saying, because there's a big anti-ABA movement. You know, I'm not going to like skirt around that. But we finally have, you know, voices on both sides saying we have to stop screaming the anti-rhetoric. Like the anti-rhetoric does nothing. It does not provide an alternative for our disabled individuals and their families who are also um, intersectioned by race, uh, socioeconomic status, um, and other marginalized groups. Um, there's no other alternative. So you know, it's forcing the issue to, you know, forcing us, you know, to finally come to the table and say, ABA needs to improve. And that's okay. You know, I, you know, people have asked me, are you hurt by these anti-ABA statements? I'm like, I'm not hurt by it because it's a science and I have to maintain philosophic doubt. The moment I start being hurt by this, I'm no longer objective. I'm no longer a scientist looking at it from an objective point of view and saying, okay, this is social validity 101. What do we need to do to improve this? Um, and so, you know, for those that maybe aren't aware of that or don't, don't know maybe where it started, there was just a lot of concern and rightfully so, but it's not a one-sided thing. There's so many nuances to ABA. There are tiny organizations that are, you know, doing this service beautifully. And then there are larger organizations, huge organizations um, that I won't name, <laughs> that are continuing to support traumatic um, uh, interventions um, that are still under the name of ABA. And so I think, you know, it's important for people to know that there, there's a huge shift that's happening. And I hope that people stay the course. I hope that people stick with it. And because I have a lot of BCBAs that come to me and say, I just want to leave because this is so hard and I don't feel like I can make a difference. But I feel like, you know, it's because we're right on the cusp. We're right there. And um, I just, I have to stay hopeful about that um, for my own community, the autistic community. And then also as a, as a professional and as a scientist, like this science needs to audit itself. It's okay to do that. 
and it's okay to grow and to change. Um, otherwise, we're not a science. We're just a cult. And yeah. I, don't, I don't think we want to be that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That was put beautifully. And I, and I, and I so agree with you. And it's, I think, unfortunately taken me like admittedly longer to get there than I wanted or realized that like you, both things can be true. Like I can be a a behavior analyst, but I can also recognize the trauma that people have faced from ABA. And that like took me a little bit longer than I wish it had for me to get there Because for me, honestly, for a long time, which I regret saying this, when people would talk about inappropriate practices, even that I didn't do, I would say, well, that's bad ABA. And I like hate that I said that because I was like, that's discrediting someone's story and someone's experience. Like I can acknowledge that that happened under the umbrella of ABA, but also continue to be a behavior analyst. And that like, that was hard for me to to come to terms with. I'm probably still coming to terms with that. Yeah, no, and that's understandable. I mean, because we're we're still, you know, it, it's it's having to come to the terms that we can be connected to this, but we don't need to be attached to it. There's mm-hmm. a very big difference between being connected to a science that you really believe in and becoming attached to it. You know, it almost becomes unhealthy. But we all get into this not because we want to harm people. So, you know, that that does take time to come to that kind of you know, reconciliation with ourselves of like, I, I didn't come into this to harm people intentionally. Um, and so, you know, yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad that you're giving yourself that grace and space to do that. Um, because, you know, at the same time, we want to think about it like, if we had a loved one that came to us and was like, oh my gosh, I was just horribly abused by my significant other, we're not going to the words that are going to come out of our mouths are not going to be, yeah, well, but not all guys and girls are like that. <laughs> yeah, That's not exactly. going to be the first statement that comes out of our mouths. Right. And yes. so we we have to remember that, you know, this is a person that is like opening up trauma to us and telling us this, and we can either re- be responsive to that trauma or we can shut it down and perpetuate that trauma. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what it's doing when we are just, which is like kind of what I realized. I'm like my, by my blanket statement being like, well, that's not the ABA I do. It's like, well, that doesn't, that doesn't move us forward or move me forward or our field forward. So what are, when you think about, you know, your work as, as an advocate and, and as a behavior analyst, what are kind of some big picture goals you have for the direction that the field is going? Oh gosh. Million dollar Um, question. (laughs) Well, I mean, and I've said this before, like I, I don't feel like I am the person to like lead a revolution. Like I, that just like, that scares the absolute (laughs) mess out of me. Um, but I want to build a model. I feel like that's something. Yeah. That's risky too, right? Like that's, that's business world type thing to, to build a center and a clinic and a model that can show, right? Like it's something tangible that maybe in the future people can come and see. Um, Because I think that's the best way um, that I myself can put the words that I'm sharing and the perspectives that I'm sharing into actionable, um, measurable, observable um, behaviors. Uh, So for me, it's just here in my little small Texas town, building a center and whether we serve five kids or whether we end up serving 50 kids or whether we end up growing and serving 500 kids, you know, my goal is just for people to be able to see how it can 
work, how ABA can support autistic individuals and not be um, traumatic and can be neurodivergent affirming to them as humans um, and, and, and be something that other practitioners can look and see and go, okay, I, this is doable. I can do this. Because right now, what I think a lot of people are experiencing, at least a lot of professionals, is like, I don't even know what this looks like. What, mm-hmm. what does that mean for the clinic that I'm working in? What does that mean for the clients that I'm, you know, seeing right now? Like, how can I, um, how can I make this change? Um, and so for me, it's always been about tangible bite size, um, actions that people can see and model basically like BST, right? Like I can model it and and I can provide examples and then people can try it. We're going to fail, right? Like obviously when you have insurance involved and you have authorizations and all that fun stuff, (laughs) you're going to get that stuff kicked back to you where insurance is like, "Uh, I don't know what these words are. This is not ABA. And you're like, yeah, it is. (laughs) It's it's the ABA that it needs to be. So um, I think just for me, that's, that's where I see my role going. Um, I don't necessarily like to call myself an advocate, just someone providing a perspective and how people receive it is going to be whatever it is. So it can be received as education. It can be received as advocacy. And for some, it's going to be received as an insult, you know, because they're not ready and that's okay. So for me, it's just being about, you know, presenting, an alternative, presenting a different perspective. Well, I really appreciate, you know, I think your bravery and sharing your perspective, especially on social media, which can be like kind of terrifying because you can get eaten alive for everything. And I think it was sharing a perspective that maybe a lot of people didn't know. And I, I feel this way, like how and what to say. And I'm kind of, I, in the last few years have become very hyper aware in some ways in a good way, in some ways, not always, but of what I'm saying and how I'm saying it. And I think you've done a really beautiful job of sharing that perspective and, and opening up people's minds to something different. Um, and I, I think that it was very needed. Have you, did you originally feel, or do you now feel like uneasy about that or what, what was that process on, on getting kind of into some of these topics on social media? So it, it, I'll be honest, it's a little bit, um, discombobulating. It's a little unnerving because these are things that I have said since like 2005. And these are things (laughs) that I have said that got me in so much trouble. So bringing it onto social media, I just kind of had this idea that like, it's going to be the same thing. People are going to rip this to shreds. People are going to be hateful. People are going to be angry with me and it'll be fine. I'm used to it. And so (laughs) I think it was a little bit of a shock that it was so well-received and that it, it still continues to be well-received on both sides. Um, I'm very honored to have some pretty large um, autistic accounts following and, and, you know, kind of giving the the nod of approval to the things that I'm saying. Um, and, and that's important to me as well, because, you know, I feel like I walk this really fine line of truth um, and it's going to be truth that impacts both sides and makes both sides uncomfortable. And I feel like as long as I, you know, keep kind of those blinders on to the the truth, um, I, I'm going to keep getting kind of this this good feedback and and receptiveness. Um, and I will also say, um, as an autistic person, you, you know, I am very much interdependent on um, individuals in my life that help me. Um, and my husband is definitely, as someone who's a creative writer, like that's his whole background is words and language. Um, he has been such a huge 
support and, you know, I don't want to reduce him to like an accommodation, but he is an individual that is so helpful to me in just unraveling, you know, people's comments and people's questions, because there's times that I, I, I still am a little bit contextually blind to what they're asking. Um, and so I'm, I'm very cautious and, and getting his eyes um, and making sure that I respond in a way that is um, easy for neurotypical individuals to kind of digest because um, that's another thing I talk a lot about is being neurobilingual. Um, people that you know I'm, I'm speaking to or engaging with on IG, I make sure to communicate in a way that is neurotypically, um, I don't wanna say acceptable, but understood. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, when I get tired and I can't do it anymore, people will notice that I don't respond to comments in anything other than emojis. Cause like, that's how exhausted I am and my <laughs> brain can't communicate anymore. Um, but yeah, no, I think, you know, I, I, I didn't really expect that to be the response. I just kind of knew that my values were, I wanted this to be a positive space where people felt safe to ask questions, felt safe to admit that they were unsure felt, you know, courage to even challenge me. I I love that when someone's like, I don't understand this. I don't know if I agree with this because I also wanted to model, like when someone doesn't agree with you, there is a way that you can engage in that conversation and it still be healthy and productive um, and meaningful instead of this whole like cancel culture thing Mm -hmm. um, that really just shuts any kind of philosophic conversation down. Like we're, we're basically saying like, there is no room for debate. There is no room for healthy dialogue from differing views and opposing views. Um, and so that's been kind of my goal in this is, is making sure that that, that social media space is that kind of environment for all different people to come, um, and either learn something or feel safe to ask questions. Oh, I love that. And I think that point on the need for dialogue is is so essential. Like whatever role we're in, whether it's a teacher and their paraprofessional or two clinicians on an IP team or a parent and a teacher, like there's there's never enough of that. And I I think back to when I was in grad school and I unfortunately had professors and supervisors that I I didn't feel like gave me the space for dialogue enough. And coming, like bringing it back to like the public school setting, like I, there were very few graduate students that were working in the public schools it was mostly in clinics and in-home. And, and as we said, it's, it's messy in schools and it's not like things don't, you know, we can't do that. I can't, I can't do an extinction procedure like that in a school, like no way. And they were like, well, that's how you do it. I'm like, well, that's not how we're going to do it tomorrow because <laughs> like we're going to be in a public school. So I think from, from right away, like I, I wish I'd had, you know, more professionals then that like allowed for that to happen because they weren't always right. Yeah. Well, and you know, that, that same feeling is probably why, but it's probably the core reason why, um, I decided to start a nonprofit was that, that culture of our field, um, and that, that lack of space to communicate and have vulnerability. Like, I feel like as a field, we do not embrace vulnerability and uncertainty. Um, those are just things that are not acceptable, Yes, I totally agree. And it's so unfortunate. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about um, your nonprofit leap. So it's, it's a little bit 
over a year old. We had started it last December and Leap really just came about because the BACB had released the demographics of our field. And, you know, I shouldn't have been surprised, um, but, you know, you you look at the the pie graph and, and you see like, right, like the percentage. And of course, being indigenous, some of my friends call me and they were like, hey, you're like that 0.02 person. That's the, <laughs> you're that one little tiny slice. That one person. <laughs> yeah. Um, although there are some other indigenous folks that have just recently passed their BCBA. So I'm super excited. I want to see that number go up. Um, but, you know, it just the the thought hit me like. We cannot really successfully support the diverse clients that we have when we have such a disparity of diverse practitioners. Um, and, I, and I know like shortly after that came this big wave of EDI and DEI movements and cultural competence. And for me, I never could really latch on to cultural competence because no matter how much I study a culture, I'd never feel like I'm going to be competent in it. Now I can have humility towards it and I can, you know, have an understanding of it, but I don't think it's really in, at least for me, um, in my purview to say like, I can be competent in someone else's culture. Mm -hmm. Um, and so leap was about let's, let's figure out why, there's this disparity. And I think we all kind of know, like you have to get these supervision hours and they cost an arm and a leg. If you don't get them through practicum in a university, you have to find somebody. Um, And as if that wasn't hard enough to find someone willing to supervise you, it costs a lot of money. Um, And so there was a lot of um, socioeconomic factors that were barriers to non-dominant individuals being able to access the field of ABA and being able to become more than an RBT. Mm -hmm. And so with LEAP, it was all about, okay, let's provide free supervision. Um, We did cohorts. We had our first cohort. They just celebrated a year with us. Um, We have one that graduated out of the cohort. She is officially a BCBA. And then this um, past spring, we started our second cohort. Um, And this is all voluntary. We have two phenomenal BCBAs, um, Christina and Jessica, that are running our second cohort. Um, And then my two, um, my other co-founders, Christina and Margaret, um, are just phenomenal. And so we have really built this passion and mission for providing free supervision. Um, we've teamed up with Study Notes ABA to um, provide scholarships for their um, study groups. And we have started a supervision, uh, supervisor's e-box subscription, which is a Patreon and, and is a small fee, but it provides all of the topic. Like, so if, if a supervisor is like, I just don't have time to make materials for my trainees or supervisees, it's like, here you go. Every month it drops in your email. You've got a topic, you've got the PowerPoint, you've got articles connected to it, podcasts connected to it. Um, and we thought, why not just like make this a little bit easier And then recently we just started a monthly PLC um, to address the culture of, you know, nobody can get together and talk to each other just to vent, just to say, I have no idea what I'm doing or to ask questions without feeling like someone's looking at you and saying, oh my gosh, this person doesn't, has no idea how to do this. And all the while not admitting that they don't know how to do it either. (laughs) Um, So we're really trying to 
one, address the disparity of diverse practitioners and not just black, white, indigenous, Hispanic, LGBTQ+. We, I, I want to see more autistic BCBAs um, in the field. Um, that's the social validity, you know, um, getting those diverse practitioners in and then really shifting the culture of the supervision experience. You know, I hear way too often, you know, supervisees saying like, well, my supervisor was like, well, I had to struggle through it. And, and, and you know, it was it sucked for me. So it's going to have to suck for you, too. And it's like, why? This isn't like why a fraternity we... where we're hazing people. <laughs> like, exactly. I'm like, why are we why are we perpetuating this culture? Like we're behavior analysts and we talk about like making the environment optimal, but <laughs> we don't even do that for those coming into the field. And so it's just been such an amazing ride with LEAP. We are still so tiny. I mean, everything is voluntary, um, but we have had such an amazing opportunity to meet um, incredible folks in the field that are doing the work around supervision as well. So yeah, that's that's our nonprofit and I'm just excited to see where we go this year. Well, that's amazing. Congratulations. I think, Thank that's, you. I think that's, yeah, something so needed, you know, I that, that supervision piece. Whenever I talk to teachers that are, getting their BCBA there was like, I'm done with the classes, but I got to do the supervision. It's like that other shoe that has to drop and it, it's a struggle. So that's, that's so needed in our, in our field right now. Yeah, absolutely. So we're, we're hoping, we're hoping to tackle that and, and, you know, make a little, a little dent in that, in that area. Awesome. Well, Mari, thank you so much for joining me. I feel like I could just like chat with you forever, but I'm not going to take too much more of your time. Um, <laughs> thanks for so much for joining. And where where can people go to continue to follow you and learn from you? Yeah. So the primary place is going to probably be the, the Instagram account, um, Audi.analyst. So it's A-U-T-I-E um, dot analyst. Um, and that's where I do a lot of my primary kind of engagement and, and posts and sharing of information. Um, so yeah, that's probably going to be the best way. And then if people want to email me, they're free to email me at bilingualbcba at gmail.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mari. Thank you, Sasha. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Autism Helper podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, hit subscribe. It would mean a lot to me if you left some feedback. Whether I'm working one-on-one -on -one with a student, doing a podcast like this one, or presenting for a PD, my goal is always to provide as much value as I can. So your feedback really helps me make sure I'm doing just that. If you have other topics you'd like me to cover, leave in the feedback or message me on social media. You can follow me at The Autism Helper on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest. Or visit my website, theautismhelper.com. Thanks again for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Having the right resources for your classroom is essential to making sure your classroom is running smoothly. At the Autism Helper Shop, we have all of the resources you need to make sure you have the behavior, communication, and curriculum supports for your students. Within our shop, we have adapted books, 
task cards, resources aligned to the VB map and the ABLES, behavior plan flowcharts, data sheets, curriculum, everything you need, whether you are an early childhood teacher or a high school teacher, we have all of the resources that will meet those students' needs. So head over to shop.theautismhelper.com to check out all of our resources.